Shabbat Shalom, scattered Israel. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley, and as you guys know, this is the Unexpected Cosmology. And this is, I don't know what this is, the, the fourth, the fifth presentation that I am giving on the Hidden Wilderness. Guys, when I started looking into this, I mean, it was kind of a hunch. Like, you know, we were kind of passing around these different verses. There was one from Enoch, one from Second Esdras that maybe talked about this hidden place. And, you know, there was like the behemoth and Leviathan. What does all this mean? So I started looking into it and I was thinking, okay, maybe I'll get several pages out of this. I, I don't really know. I had no clue what I was in for. And this paper has completely transfixed and transformed my understanding of what I think happened uh, during the millennial kingdom of Messiah, beforehand, during, afterwards, and presently. And I don't even know if, if I've really gotten across to you guys the paradigm shift of what I think was happening. And maybe in time we'll do that. You might get a little bit more of a sense to, about it tonight. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I want to cover. It's going to be some phenomenal things, including some of Pamela's incredible Paleo-Hebrew translations. And you know, I know you guys enjoyed that last week. So let's get right into this. Starting out, this is the Mountain of Yahuwah from the Paleo-Hebrew. I was telling you guys last time, it was two or three weeks ago, I gave a presentation on the Hidden Wilderness, and I was really bummed on Sabbath. In a good way, because I was having a conversation with Pamela um, and a few others, Rebecca, maybe Katie, a few others were in there. And we were talking about uh, the mountain or, or Mount Zion and uh, the 144,000 and things like that, things I'm going to be covering tonight uh, and what she has found in the Paleo-Hebrew. And I'm like, Pamela, I, <laughs> you're dropping this in my lap right now. I'm about to go live in a few hours talking about this. And now you're giving me this new information. I can't go live with this. Like, I can't. I can't because it's like, this is too good to leave out. And so this was a good thing. It was a good thing that she did it. And I had a much shorter presentation last time. But this time, um, I've come back to you. I've regrouped. I've rebounded. And we're going to give it another go. So here we are. The Mountain of Yahuwah from the Paleo-Hebrew. And if you're not caught up with the PDF, this is on page 76. Also, I should just go ahead and note that... This here, because I had to bump this up by a couple weeks, I was hoping to do an edit on this. So hopefully there's not too many um, spelling or errors or something like that. But this is going to be the next book that I will be releasing with the TUC Book Club starting March 1st. March 1st, 2nd, 3rd, we're going to begin sending this out. And this will be a TUC exclusive. I will not be selling this in the store. This is one of the perks of being in the membership. I will, this is, you'll get like a three month head start because I'm not going to be public or physically selling copies until the conference late May. So really in June is when we're going to premiere it in the store. Um, so for those of you that are supporting the ministry through the book club, I appreciate that. And um, this is something that's for you guys. So. Summing up the story of Zosimus, and he was what we talked about last time, and then believing it to be plausible, if not entirely true, will require a tweak in theology for many of you. I'm not saying you, you. A great many of my readers understand the importance of guarding the Father's commands. Somebody will take issue with obedience on this level, though. The inhabitants of the land were mortals living pure lives, choosing righteousness rather than sin, 
And that goes against the greater wealth of Christian thinking. You guys can see why I had originally intended this to be included in the last presentation. My detractors often tell me they were pure, or they are pure, solely on the basis that Jesus is pure. But then, by that logic, everyone who believes in Jesus should be hopping on the one-way express to the hidden wilderness, land of entitlement. Look at what Yahusha HaMashiach has to say on this subject. Some hail me as their leader, thinking this will help them in the life to come, but it will not. Only those who wholeheartedly serve the cause and purpose of Yahuwah will enjoy this in full glory. Many who do things in my name will expect me to intercede for them. But to these I will say, I did not know you or authorize the statements you made by your deeds. Shall you be judged? Ouch. The book of the Nazarene 959. If that doesn't put the fear of Yah in you right there. I was, uh, and I'm going to probably get ahead of myself. I was taught, I was raised in the Christian church that on the day of judgment, when, you know, if you're, if the book is thrown at you or your, your sins are read off and revealed, uh, that you're not to say anything. You just point it at, at Jesus. You just point at him and he'll he'll come in with that smile, you know, looking like a slick lawyer and he's going to get you off the hook. Well, here he says he's not going to do that. And that's the very thing that Christianity teaches. That should frighten everybody. Just know that I'm not speaking of you, you, while reminiscing of my own Christian upbringing. When it comes to that decisive moment of standing before the throne of Elohim, and I just explained this, but I'll repeat it. I was instructed to keep my mouth shut and point the finger at Jesus as if my belief in his goodness and the sacrifice of his life on the cross would cause him to come swinging in my defense. Yahushua's forewarning speaks completely against that. Many who do things in his name will expect them to intercede for them. Well, there's your first, uh, your first uh, editing error right there. Expect them to them. There is, <laughs> there is the word so commonly used, intercede. But he will answer them on that day, I did not know you nor authorize the statements that you made. Everything about that statement goes against the moral mismanagement of the most basic Christian instruction. It is also a variation of the passage found in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, wherein we read, not everyone that says unto me, Adonai, Adonai, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven, or I should stress, but he. Many will say to me in that day, Adonai, Adonai, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name have cast out devils? And in your name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. And that, of course, comes from Matthew 7, 21 through 23. What I have just quoted from happens to be one of the most well-known passages in the whole of Christian literature, which is shocking, all things considered. A great deal many, a great deal many of Christians who exclaim from the rooftops that the Torah is done away with and that Elohim's commands are no longer to be guarded nor obeyed, have dropped this very passage into my lap, saying Jesus is speaking to those who attempt to guard the Father's commands without ever appreciating the reason why he didn't know these certain individuals. They were workers of lawlessness. That is being without the Torah. 
Likewise, when I share the same passage with the lawless, they will often return fire claiming they know Jesus and he knows them and that they're good to go. And something about Jesus being their lawyer in heaven because they have performed many miracles and cast out devils in his name, prompting me to slap my face onto the tabletop. It seems to me that a defining qualifier between those on the wide road of existence and the narrow path are those who make justifications or excuses versus those who take responsibility for their action while the sun is still up in the sky. And so regarding the hidden wilderness, how do we sum up everything put forward so far? I think it is safe to say a vast minority of souls have attempted the mortal journey towards the hidden wilderness. And of those scant few who happened upon it, undoubtedly through divine guidance, a great deal many more were rejected from continuing on. Ever, even uh, Zosimus, who was a, a holy set-apart righteous man, he was allowed to visit the outskirts, uh, but he couldn't, you know, he couldn't go all the way in. None of these people can. Ever since starting the investigation, I've been asked by numerous individuals to point the way in the direction of the hidden wilderness, as if the X marks the spot on a map and a sailboat equipped with supplies is good enough to land them a reservation. No, your righteousness will get you there, either in this lifetime or the next. If you truly want to inhabit the hidden wilderness, or heaven for that matter, then you will have to live a life worthy of it now. And there we see some of uh, the wonderful Paleo-Hebrew, courtesy of Miss Pamela. I realize now that that was the longest introduction ever for a section which promises to promote the hidden wilderness in the Paleo-Hebrew. Though you will soon understand why I went to such great lengths to fend off the incoming swell of Torah rebels. What you see before you is Psalm 24 in the Paleo. No, I do not read the paleo. Normally, I wouldn't have the faintest clue what is being discussed in a dialect such as this one. Certainly not the hidden wilderness if it happened to spring up. It's a good thing, then, that I have a paleo aficionado in my corner. You guys all know who that is. The following translation is not mine. It comes from Miss Pamela. More specifically, it derives from her book, Psalms from the Paleo Hebrew, Volume 1. There's, there's the plug for, for Pamela's magnificent book. Well, here is what Psalm 24 in the Paleo says, which you can, of course, read in her book. Of Yahuwah exists the earth, the ground, the continents, and the, con and the contents therein, the full number of them, belong to him. The inhabited lands and all those who dwell therein are also his. For the firmly fixed authority has placed it upon the foaming seas, he has erected it upon the flowing streams. He caused it to exist. It remains. A brief interruption, and you guys know I love the interruptions. The context of this psalm is given to us, and the earth is it. The earth, as you can see, involves the ground, but also the continents, as well as the full number of uh, co uh, contents contained within. The inhabited lands, including every inhabitant dwelling therein, all belong to Yahuwah Elohim. But even the foaming seas are his. The part about the earth being firmly fixed is not speaking about a spinning, wobbling globe hurtling at several hundred thousand miles per hour through a vacuum of 
Kabbalah space, only tricking us into the observable, observable senses of a motionless plane through the magic of gravity. FYI. I bring that up because you will have a difficult time uh, as this investigation progresses if hugging the globe to your bosom and rocking it to sleep is a passion of yours. Continuing. In fact, of course, this whole hidden wilderness it, it, narrative, it doesn't work uh, with the globe. And I, I've stated this early in the paper. This is why I think this is it, guys. This is the reason for the globe narrative. It's not just to hide uh, Hebrew cosmology. It's not just to hide the creator. Well, it is. It is to, to literally, to physically hide the creator. And I think it was at uh, Yah's prompting. I think it's part of the delusion, the, the darkness that uh, he cast, he gives to people um, by their own desires of their hearts. He hands them uh, their desires. What person can go up or be carried aloft into the mountain of Yahauha? Indeed, who shall ascend into the Kadash? Set apart dwelling, the undefiled place of his abode, the one who is free from blame. Oh, well, there it is. He whose hands and works are pure. In the curved hollow of the palm, he carries no guilt. The heart, the inner workings of his will and purpose, and the mode of his actions exist blameless. Of course, a Christian theology would say that that's not really speaking of them. It just speaks of Jesus. And as long as you believe that in him, then you are all of these things. And that's obviously a ridiculous explanation, but uh, it is the common one. His nefash, his living, breathing self, the inner workings of his will and purpose and his strength are not lifted up into vanity or empty idols. This one does not raise himself towards calamity and ruin. He who has never given allegiance or sworn deceitfully unto idols. He shall bear up the burden of prosperity. Yahuwah shall stoop and place a gift at this one's feet. Yes, he shall receive. Uh, and I guess that's... Uh, I can't even pronounce that tonight. Sorry, we're skipping that word. From Allahayam, his Yasha. I, Ua, this circuit of an age, as it winds round and round, as one generation tramples upon another, as the path is searched out, and these seek thy face, O Yakub. Psalm 24. The question is asked regarding what person can go up or be, be carried aloft unto the mountain of Yahuwah. The psalmist answers, but first, I will ask you to take notes of the order of events. The continents of the earth are described, and then the foaming oceans. Only afterwards is the mountain of Yahuwah brought to our attention. He's not talking about Mount Zion and Israel. That's what many of you are thinking. Certainly, the temple was a place of holiness, but Mount Zion was still a threshing floor during David's tenure. And the tabernacle was a traveling one. You will say it as being prophetic to a future time. Well then, time and time again, the temple was defiled. It was destroyed and then rebuilt and defiled again until finally it was destroyed for good. The mountain being spoken of here is beyond the inhabited continents of the earth and the ocean. It is an undefiled location. It is so set apart that only the blameless can be carried there. That's not a reference to uh, Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv and an airplane. 
The requirements of those who are granted permission to ascend to the heights of the set-apart mountain is given, and it's a tall order. Follow along, the one who is free from blame outwardly, but also through the inner workings of his heart. He whose hands and works are pure, in his hand he carries no guilt. All of these traits can be pursued by the souls of men through a lifetime of penitence. But then pay attention to the next qualifier. He who has never given allegiance or deceitful word unto idols. I'm trying to recollect if I have ever transgressed that last requirement. At this point, you should be taking up some the, the same introspection. Something so heavy sure does cancel out many applicants. If only the shepherds of Christianity taught its congregation to take their pursuit of righteous living seriously, rather than to sit passively in their sins pointing the finger at Jesus, as though he will advocate for their willful lawlessness. How many shots do you suspect we have at this? I can only recall living one life. The psalmist concludes that the circuit of an age winds round and round, and that one generation tramples upon another, but only those who seek out the path of Yahuwah will find it. And what does that tell us? That an X marks a spot on the map is a curious find, though ultimately futile. Because in the end, even Hasatan will convince the world to surround and ultimately advance upon it. Only those who seek the face of the Most High will ascend there. More and more passages keep springing up in Scripture regarding the hidden wilderness, and I can't get to them fast enough. Don't give me the credit. I don't deserve any of it. On the other side of my computer screen, I'm actually typing this out as she's like sending all these like scripture verses to me. Miss Pamela is the one typing away on the keyboard, having put her sleuth skills to use. So many references to choose from. This must be what it's like trying to nab a leaf in a cyclone. I suppose the thing to do in trying times such as these is to choose a new pretty picture of a mountain landscape as a divider, which I've done, so that it, the reader doesn't get confused between one scriptural passage and another, and then charge ahead. The following reference to the hidden wilderness derives from Micah rather than Psalms, and now that I've read it, I'm trying to make heads or tails of my reality. The word of Yahuwah that exist to Micah the Mor Morasti. There shall exist in the later end, yes, at that time shall exist in the land of Ephraim, a mountain, a dwelling place, and a habitation for Yahuwah, the self-existent one. The summit, firm and well-established, shall be lifted up above the hills, lower than the mountain, shining radiant, shall flow sparkling streams on account of the people of the covenants, the kindred, Micah 4. The mountain which he is describing is said to be revealed in the later end of his story. I'm thinking that's a reference to the thousand-year reign. Well, Zion was already in existence during the prophet Micah's ministry, and Shaloma's temple was still standing upon it. Therefore, he can't possibly be referring to that one. Yerushalayim, as you well know, was in Yehuda, the kingdom of, of Judah, the mountain which Micah is referring to derives from the land of Ephraim. Say what again? Did he just drop an E-bomb? He did. Yes, that is what just happened, Ephraim. And now I'm going into a tailspin. You would think I'd be performing cartwheels. Well, I am, but only cautiously. At my age, I am prone to throw my back, to, to throw my back out. 
Keep reading. It says the land of Ephraim would exist, quote, on account of the people of the covenants, unquote. Where have we read that before? In my People of the Covenant thesis paper, naturally, Micah may be directing us to the British, because that's what Britain means in Hebrew, covenant. The word Brit or Berith carries with it the sense of cutting. You will recall how Abraham personally observed Yahuwah passing between the severed halves of an animal in Genesis 15:7 when a covenant was cut with them. To add to that, the word for people in Hebrew is Am, and so the term covenant people in Hebrew would be Britam, which is close, rather close to Britain, don't you think? Even the word Ish in Hebrew means man. British, therefore, directs us to the covenant man. So continuing, just throw that out there for your consideration. Then shall come the Goyim, the nations without the covenant. The chief and great ones shall declare, walk this way. Let us ascend into the mountain of Yahuwah, the self-existent one, near the dwelling place of the Elohim of Yaakov. He will pour forth his course of life. He will instruct in his ways. Come, for from Zion shall come forth the Torah and the word of Yahuwah from Yerushalayim. Again, from Micah 4. You notice that I, I don't put in verses. Um, that's to uh, respect Pamela's translation. The Goim are described as the people without the covenants, and very accurate if I do say so myself. Not a, com- not a compliment. Christians constantly boast about how they're a Gentile without having the faintest clue as to their level of ignorance. A Gentile is someone without the covenants. And therefore, outside of the salvation, the, blah, I'm just stumbling over my own words tonight. A Gentile is someone without the covenants, and therefore outside of the salvation plan. Being grafted into Yasharel through Ephraim is what it's all about. That is why I pause to take a few victory laps when reading about the mountain and the land of Ephraim. The passage we have just read is either referring to the headed wilderness or to Britain, uh, if I am right on my other assessments, though I'm willing to be wrong, though I am more inclined to believe both. That's referring to both places. According to Zosimus, there was a group of righteous covenant members who made it to the hidden wilderness through the guidance of an angel. That is by no means the same party who journeyed with the prophets Yermiahu, that'd be Jeremiah, and Baruch to Mitraim, Egypt, and as I suspect, to Spain and eventually the British Isles. Both parties may have established the land of Ephraim, a physical kingdom as well as the blessed land for immortals. In this way, the kingdom of Britain remained on stage at the closure of the thousand-year reign, whereas the blessed land of rest was hidden behind the curtains again, bringing us up to the present. Hopefully you guys followed that. And it's, it's sad because if Britain is the land of Ephraim, like Israel, oh man, it is failing miserably right now. I can't, you know, here I am in America, you know, it's like calling the kettle black, right? But uh, if you guys have been following religiously what has been happening in Britain, wowzers. Whichever land is being referred to here, what happens next is far more important. The chief and great ones among the Goyim shall declare, walk this way. I'm guessing those are the 144,000 whom we read about in Revelation. Actually, I would, I wish I could go back and uh, tra- change that now because we're going to see who the 144,000 really are. I would maybe just uh, say 
the kings and uh, priests of the kingdom. Are we expected to believe they're singing the Aerosmith song? No, they are telling the people to walk the line according to Yahuwah's instructions in righteous living via the Torah. That's the same thing as saying to walk as Yahushua HaMashiach walked, by the way. I am well aware of the fact that this passage ends by saying the Torah shall come forth from Zion and the word of Yahuwah from Yerushalayim. Doesn't sound like hidden wilderness material, at least not on the surface. I included it so that nobody accuses me of foul play. It also in no way cancels out the mountain of the land of Ephraim. Contrarily, it increases the Torah and covenant connection and the need for the Goyim to walk in its precepts, while furthermore telling us what we already know. That the Torah and the Word did come forth from Yerushalayim through the Mashiach. Zion as well as Yerushalayim are being invoked because the people did not keep to the covenant and were thusly divorced from the land in 70 AD. But with the mountain of Ephraim, they were given another chance. Pausing here for a swig of tea. I'm on tea tonight. Because we're talking about the British. Psalm 91 is epic. We're talking the Lord of the Rings as sagas go. Speaking of which, in a little while, I will detail Middle-earth's curious involvement in the Hidden Wilderness narrative. And when I do, you will see how Tolkien was attempting to convey what the Bible has already been highlighting all along. Just so you guys know, don't expect that tonight. That was in my first presentation. But, you know, I'm writing this in an order, right? They tell us Moshe penned this psalm on the very day when the tabernacle in the wilderness was complete. That will cause many of you to read it in the light of the Exodus generation. I'm fine with that and believe it should be viewed in that context, but not at the sake of neglecting an important principle embedded within the paleo. Something else is happening at the same time, a past event and a future one. And this is what we read from Psalm 91. He will sit down in quiet and abide in the hidden place, the covert of the mountain, or the coverts of the mountain of Ilion. Turn aside, weary traveler, rest, find lodging in the shadow and protection of Shaddai, the most powerful El. I will boast of Yahuwah, the one to whom I flee. He exists, my mountain castle, my Elahai. In his dwelling will I be surrounded. Will I be securely fenced in? Psalm 91. Pause. For the weary traveler, uh, for, for, the, for the weary travel in route of, out of Mitraim, Sinai, Sinai was intended as a place of lodging and rest, a pilgrimage destination where the children of Yashorel might feel secure and under the shadow and protection of El Elyon, which means the Most High Elohim. And of course, Shaddai directs us to the Almighty. What Psalm 91 manages to capture is the mindset of many a sons and daughters of Yasharel who saw themselves as fleeing to the mountain castle and dwelling of their Elohim, which I think is a beautiful picture. Uh, if you can revisualize the Exodus account coming out of Egypt through the Red Sea and fleeing to the, the mountain castle of Sinai. It was a place where they might be surrounded by his protection, experiencing his very presence, and ultimately fenced in. Unfortunately, not everyone in the ranks saw it that way. If you happen to be one of the few who read the, the, the front two-thirds of your Bibles, rather than the 13 epistles in the back, that's not a, a jab at, at Brother Paul. It's just 
that's fact is fact. Wondering why it's all so confusing, and then you know the story of which I describe. They murmured against his caregiving, while others straight up rebelled against the righteous living that was expected of them there, via the Torah, and a great deal many were destroyed. It's all too perfect for our present conversation, continuing. Yes, he will snatch me away like plunder from ruin and destruction. He will deliver me from those who plot and plan, and from the net which they spread out to entrap me. By the most powerful L I escape from plague and death, and from the deep chasm, Psalm 91 continued. There is so much going on here that you might as well read the entire book of Exodus to uncover it all. I'm sensing the plagues of Mitraim and the Red Sea crossing, as well as the schemes of Pharaoh, but also the attack made by the forces of Amalek at the foot of the mountain. I think the part that has me most excited is Moshe's sentiments regarding the plunder. We often read the Exodus account and make note of how Yashrael left with the riches of Mitraim in their pocket. But for Moshe and those of that generation who recognize their Yeshua, it appears as though they saw themselves, they saw themselves as Yahuwah's plunder, snatched away from ruin and destruction. That's exciting. Hopefully you are seeing the hidden wilderness in all of this. It should be a given, and I need to repeatedly point out that, uh, those parallels. So continuing. Beneath the covering of his wings, the interwoven pinion feathers, he will shut you in. Here you will go aside, you will take refuge, as a barbed shield, as a buckler crafted a scaly dragonhide that guards with prickliness and with piercing cold, his truth shall protect you. You will not tremble in fear, you will not reverence the night terror, Laila, we've gone over her before, who twist away from the light, and during the days and the time periods between the rising of the sun until the going down thereof, the arrow that flies shall not pierce you. More from Psalm 91. Moshe has conjured the image of a dragon for us. That's probably another seraphim reference. I have covered the topic considerably in my wastelands of the seraphim paper and not going over it again. It is the scaly hide of the dragon which is used to clothe and ultimately protect those who take refuge in the truth of Yahuwah. I am furthermore reminded of the serpent skin which he fashioned for Adam and Chua after their transgression, but also the scaly hide of Leviathan. See how it all comes together into one big picture. The later is a primeval creature whom Yahuwah created to sport with. I really need to do a lesson on that. I have also concluded that the Leviathan is the very entity which makes up the realm of Sheol. Yahuwah is not only offering total protection against the destroyer and the realm of death, he is intending to clothe his children in the flesh of those who wish to bring about their destruction. Leila, the night terror, I have also encountered before. You'll have to read up on the night terror in the Genesis reset. I talk about that. It's, she shows up in the very first chapter, one of the like verse three or four. But here is a quick recap. She makes her initial appearance. I just, I'm always getting ahead of myself. She makes her initial appearance in the first chapter of Beersheath. Leila is the word for night in Hebrew. Starting in the second verse, I was wrong, not the third verse. She shows up in the second verse. Starting in the second verse of the Bible, it is this Ruach of darkness, which appears to have risen up from the deep waters, the underground prison of the abyss, as to confront the son of Elohim. 
who was selected and declared heir of the kingdom only one verse earlier. It's all in the paleo people. The Ruach HaKadosh violently confronted the night Ruach, the night terror. And what happens only one verse later? The lights is brought forth, which I believe Yahusha is, you could say, born. The only begotten son. I told you this would be epic. Continuing, and Arathel, cherub of darkness, ooh, pestilence walks about. He lays waste with destructive acts of violence. The teeth of the destroyer appears at midday. He shall fall, the ad adversary, his troops, 1,100 in company, are cast down at your side. Thousands upon thousands die violently to your right. Your nephal shall not approach near you. Psalm 91. The best way to characterize Arafel is by describing the darkness. The only hurdle is in understanding that there are two words in Hebrew which signify darkness, Arafel and uh, uh, Choshek, or I guess you say Kosek, Koshek. Uh, I'll mispronounce it either way, so let's just run with it. Choshek is the more conventional and straightforward appropriation for the absence of light. Whereas Arafel is an altogether different type of darkness. It is a thick and deep gloom, a heavy, a heavy cloud, apocalyptic in nature, and always identified with the presence of Elohim. One such occurrence happens in Exodus 20, verse 2, when the children of Yashorel stand back and watch Moshe ascend Sinai into the Arafel, the very presence of Elohim. But that's not what we're seeing here. Like Leila, Arafel is handed the personification of a ruach and a cherub angel. I will remind you that the serpent, who is also identified as a dragon, has all the markings of a seraphim angel. Not the same. Calling this Arafel uh, ruach Satan would be getting our wires crossed, and we don't want to do that. The Satan, of course, is a courtroom title denoting an accuser, whereas Arafel walks about with pestilence on his mind. He also is the adversary of Yahuwah set apart, and with him are troops numbering in the thousands and thousands. In saying they will be cast down at the sides of those who have made the journeys to the mountain, dying a violent death, we have the most curious camp of Yah reference in Revelation 20. That affiliation only continues for the remainder of the psalm. Some will experience difficulty in appreciating or coming to terms with the likelihood that Yahuwah still uses darkness to hide himself, mainly because of the implications. Even the Ruachoth of darkness are his servants. And anyways, a canopy of darkness explains how humanity does not see nor perceive the Most High, both on a physical and spiritual level. I guess you could say metaphysical. Do you see how that works? Chozek and Arafel are ultimately used as a cloaking device. The darkness cannot see the light, and the adversary blinds people to the truth. The surrounding darkness also explains how the wilderness can be hidden. Yes, I just threw out the possibility that we are in the hidden wilderness. I'll be uh, adapting that here very soon. Yeah, willing. Rockby Enika Tabit. Only with your eyes shall you consider, shall you perceive the retribution against those who left the correct path, the morally wrong, the guilty and condemned. Because you have set in place Yehuwah as your refuge, Yehuwah who is my support, 
because you have determined Ilion as your dwelling place. Therefore, you will not encounter misery. Calamity shall not happen to you. You will not be broken by distress. No spotted plague shall draw near in the tabernacle of your home, for he will give command to his malakah, his messengers. That's where we get the word angel. To guard you in all your journey. In the palm of their hands, they shall lift you up and carry you away to prevent your feet from being smitten by the builders. Upon the lion and the venomous serpent you shall walk. You will stamp upon the young lion and the sea monster. Because he is attached to me, because he clings to me in love, I will cause him to slip away, to escape. I will lift him up and set him in a high, inaccessible place, because he intimately knows my name and my character. He will cry out, I will answer tunefully. I, Enoki Yehuwa, will be with him in his tribulation. I will gird him for battle. I will burden him with riches and honor. That's a nice thought. You will be burdened with riches and honor. With length of days and abundance will he be satisfied, and he will see with his eyes my Yeshua. That's a beautiful way to end that portion right there. It is indeed a curious thing that Moshe should pen a psalm such as this one, Along, along the skirt of Sinai of all places, so as to direct future generations to the mountain of El Elyon, if the land of promise was already on his mind, and it most certainly was. Yasharel was, of course, the land of promise, but as the biblical narrative continues, so is Ephraim. What appears to be happening is an ongoing pilgrimage, one generation after the next, though another exodus may very well be in order. It is Sinai that we're all expected to arrive to? Is that where the adversary will send troops by the thousands in number? Clearly, an ongoing pilgrimage is expected, and over great distances. We see venomous serpents which shall be trod upon, a wilderness picture. But, even, but then the sea monster speaks of people traveling from far-off continents over land and water. And by the way, there are other accounts... Um, uh, what's his name? The I talked about him in here. I can't even think about it at the moment. But um, uh, Saints, um, it's in there. He actually, on his way to the hidden wilderness, he uh, met with a, a, sea, a sea serpent. And he actually confused it for an island. Um, but uh, same thing, kind of interesting. Malachi is the word for messenger, denoting a prophet or an angel, as I, as I mentioned. The most obvious reality is one in which guardian angels surround us. But I'm thinking there are intel agents from the hidden wilderness, Mekilzedek priests, really, which aid the children of Elohim on their journey. Yes, I think that the... Uh, uh, I do think the intel is being played both ways. And I think that uh, we're being dropped some intel from the good guys. Finally, to close this off, the character of those who arrive to the mountain of Elion are described. It's as I've already stated, I keep getting asked for directions to the inaccessible place, but the roadmap is already laid out in the Torah. You will have to read it for yourself to discern the coordinates. Only those who love Yahuwah, who, cl who clings to him in love, intimately knowing his name and his character, and then crying out to him for Yeshua, his salvation, will be answered. It is those individuals who will slip right on through the Arafel, which hides his abode 
rather than the self-declared disciples bemoaning, ultimately rebelling against Yahuwah's set-apart instruction. And there is no shortage of them. Obedience is the easy part when one truly sees themselves as the plunder of war. I mean, that is a beautiful picture. If you can see yourself as a slave, the very plunder of Yahuwah, that he is carting you off, carried off in the arms of Shaddai during the destruction event. Like he's, just, he's destroying everything, but he's bringing you out of it and sparing you, giving you another shot. The servant will arrive so as to rest under the shade of Yahuwah, but then he will be girded for battle, dressed in dragon hide, his only burden being the riches and honor which Yahuwah has bestowed upon him. Hum humility has long been associated with the qualities of chivalrous character, by the way. This next one has me really excited. The mountain of Melchizedek and the sons of the ice wall. Yes, you heard that right. I'm trying to drink uh, tea, but it hasn't cooled down yet. Still really hot. Maybe the uh, sons of the ice wall can melt it. I don't say this to alarm anyone, but the sons of Korah may have been priests of the millennial kingdom. It's not like I'm saying they were. The possibility is simply being thrown out there because you never really know. I've seen stranger things. The sons of Korah, in case you're unaware, are listed as the writers of nearly a dozen psalms. 42, 44 through 49, 84, 85, 87, and 88 to be exact. The reason I suspect as much is because of how the very word Korah is broken down in the Paleo-Hebrew. The name literally means sons of the cold wall. And what does that remind you of? Hebrew cosmology. Many of us assume there is an ice wall surrounding our realm. However, I will show you uh, that in all likelihood, it is only the partial truth. The explanation will not happen, though, until after I get around to the moon map, which I already went over with you guys. That uh, I showed you guys that if, if it is true, the, if the moon map is true, uh, that the ice wall is constantly shifting and it takes like 20-something 20, 20 thousand years to move all the way around the greater realm. You will have to learn patience. Well, if you guys were already saw the presentation, then you don't need to. The other potential meaning to Korah is sons of the bald men. The easiest explanation is usually the right one, and so maybe they were simply bald, every last one of them, and also a shiny mop top was a prerequisite, a prerequisite for singing in the choir. I couldn't really say as I wasn't there. If I had to remain on the side of caution, then I would claim they are both correct. Being bald and cold equally come into the narrative in a historical as well as prophetic manner. I'll let you make heads or tails of that. It makes perfect logical sense to me, but I can't expect everyone to play the part of a UN translator while my thoughts speak out loud. Sons of the Cold Wall really stands out to me for a few reasons. Specifically, because Psalm 48 is perfect, or is part of today's show and tell. It is a passage which not only screams the Millennial Kingdom as something that will happen, or contrarily, as a string which has already been pulled and is unraveling in real time when the psalm has, is being written, but also the meaning of the name. Let's just say I'm not seeing barbershop poles anywhere in the narrative. 
Before moving forward, there is something you should know. Those lines in Micah 4 about the Torah and the word coming forth from Mount Zion, as well as Yerushalayim, was a double uh, entendre, which is to say it had a second meaning. Most people would read that and assume it's talking about the Zionist stronghold alongside the Mediterranean, but I'm of the mind to say they're looking at the wrong continent and ocean. Miss Pamela shared another paleo translation with me. It is, of course, Psalm 48, a publication of the Korah group, and you'll want to be seated for this. Don't say I didn't warn you. So getting right into it. Great is Yahuwah, our established leader. Praise him, and with a clear, brilliant sound, uh, I guess, halal. Praise him in the city of Nua, the established Kadash mountain. Behold how beautifully situated, rising upwards like a tuneful voice, the joy of all Arats, Mount Zion, in the most remote regions, northward, city of the chief, head, most powerful, Malak king, who would know him as, of course, Bekilzedek, Psalm 48, 1 through 2. As far as I'm concerned, Psalm 48 brings everything we've so far been talking about together into one coherent picture. I'm a bit of a romantic when it comes to things like sunsets and unknown places on the map. And so one thing that is becoming abundantly clear in all of this is that I've saved the best for last. The Mount Zion we're seeking, at least as the thousand-year reign of Hamashiach is concerned, is a mountain in the most remote regions of the northish direction. Sounds cold. There is even a city we're seeing there. I will go out on a limb and say this is the Yerushalayim we're looking for. And you'll never guess who is ruling as king of the city. We have discovered our Mechilzedek in the Hidden Wilderness narrative. It doesn't take a seminary student to spill out the implications of that one. I decided to take the scissors out upon a page or two of Miss Pamela's playbook so that you can watch the master at work. The paleo word for Zion is here shown, and it means sunny mountain. Also, the great thing here is that uh, you guys all know uh, Pamela, so you know she's not like some alter ego, and I'm just making her up. She does exist. This isn't like um, uh, George Glass from the Brady Bunch. Some of you may be thinking that this proves an end-of-the-earth theory as it pertains to its coordinates, especially since I am claiming the hidden wilderness lies far beyond the sun's circuit. Quite contrarily, it tells me I can expect it to be always sunny there and never night. Unlike our own side of the realm, where it is sometimes sunny on a good day and often night, I told you that we are watching the master at work. Look at what happens when Miss Pamela breaks down the paleo. But then the root of Zion altogether paints a different picture. Quite suddenly, the mountain delivers the image of a ship or a dry region in the midst of the waters, telling us that it is potentially transportable. And uh, for those of you who were here last week during the Paleo-Hebrew Psalms presentation, she, I think she talked about that some. I know she brought it up. I don't know about you, but the description immediately reminds me of two separate anime films, Castle in the Sky and Howl's Moving Castle. They are both put out by Studio Ghibli and are considered the Pixar of Japan, if you don't know who they are. Castle in the Sky, uh, in particular, tells the story of an orphan girl who learns that she's a princess descended from the Laputan royal family. 
The kingdom of Laputa is a long sought after lost city considered to be a myth by nearly everyone and is an as is in actuality an Edenic like floating island in the sky complete with ancient technology. And that would be the the robot you see there. The later movie, Howl's Moving Castle, pits a witch of the waste against the wizard of the transportable castle, who, in a fit of jealous rage, transforms a young girl into an old woman in hopes that Howl may not find her beautiful. The plot is far more complicated than that. I am simply giving you the basics. My reason for doing so is to show that the story is being repeatedly told so as to make the pursuit of, tr of truth trivial, though we are ultimately expected to believe it is all fiction. Anywho, getting back to Psalm 48 in the Paleo. Allahayam, son, son and heir, go to that lofty fortress, citadel of steadfastness, place of gathering. There intimately know and perceive the established path of life, the rock of refuge. Behold, for all the kings, continually, for as far as one can see or perceive, to the edge of the horizon beyond, from ancient times, they assembled together, passing over across the sea. Did you get all that? The fortress is the habitation of the son and heir of Elohim. But you probably knew that already, seeing as how we, uh, we there is a Melchizedek aspect of it. But then, what is this? The kings of the earth assembled themselves together, passing over across the sea and even beyond the very horizon en route for the mountain. It appears as though the event happened in ancient times. Though the sons of Korah very well may have been outlining a double fulfillment as prophecy goes, it happened in ancient times, but was either expected to transpire again or had only recently unraveled, though the history books tell nothing about it. Perhaps now you can begin to see why I chose to go with the sons of the Cold Law interpretation for singers rather than a barbershop quartet. Which I love a good barbershop quartet, by the way. I have a a vinyl record collection of good old barbershop quartets. Behold the clamor as they saw the powerful chief, the established strength. They were astonished, confused. They trembled, perishing suddenly as they made haste to flee. Behold and see their evil condition. Sadness trembling, devouring chaos has seized them. The grip of sudden pain like that of a woman bringing forth. On the pathway to the sea, as a sign in the Ruach, you destroyed the fleet of ships of Tarshish. Tarshish. I can't believe I messed that up. Of Tarshish. I still can't do it. I can't do it. Psalm 48, 3 through 7. Well, that escalated quickly. Not my mispronunciation, but just the overall conflict. I was honestly thinking the kings were setting sail to honor Mekilzadek, but then it took a turn for the worst. They had convinced themselves that he would be easily toppled, given their combined strength. But then terror overstruck them, or overtook them, and they turned to flee. Looks like the Ruach apprehended what remained of their coalition on the waters, just as she had done during the Genesis Reset event when the dark entity emerging from the abyss needed stayed. Only this time, an entire fleet of Tarshish ships, I think I did it, are given the splish-splash treatment. FYI, Tarshish, I'm killing myself tonight, is the city which the prophet Jonas set sail to back when he thought it might be a good idea to run from Yah, and that's never a good idea. Many suspect it was a city nestled along the coast of Spain, 
though others have suspected Atlantis, which I don't, by the way. Tarshish may very well have been intended as a new Atlantis, but the ruins of the original city are elsewhere and can still be seen in the eye of the Sahara Desert. That's a whole nother presentation I hope to cover for you guys. Meanwhile, the Septuagint, the Vulgate, and the Targum of Jonathan render Tarshish as Carthage, which I believe is probably more accurate. That would be Northern Africa. I'm still not reading about any of this in the history books, are you? I can't find anywhere in the archives that details a worldwide confederation of ships sailing to the uttermost north towards the mountain of Melchizedek to set somebody else up on the throne. I will keep looking for clues, but I'm not putting much stock into it. All right, we are on page 102, if you need caught up. Where the 144,000 come into this, Josh, be sure to scroll up and down and show the viewer all those pretty ladies there. Some lovely ladies of the realm. And now you're probably wondering why portraits of medieval women fill an entire page and above 144,000 heading, no less. Do the women share anything in common with the number you want to know? My answer awaits your personal judgment on whether I pass the test or not. Somebody is already writing a letter of complaint to their pastor regarding the worst eschatology ever. Well, then I'm not ready to tell you quite yet. You will have to hold your horses until I walk you back down the happy bunny trail that brought about the sweet-scented breeze of these lovely ladies of the realm. I offer you another colorful assortment of medieval me-ladies without offering any apologies. From the looks of them, you think it was a woman's world. So many damsels, none in distress. I'm counting nine on the first page and another 30 in the second batch, though some of them may be repeated. Still not, still not enough. There should be thousands more. Tens of thousands isn't quite right either. I'm thinking at least 144,000. Fine, you caught me. I have strayed from the cult mentality so as to take a new position. Look, sometimes an investigation doesn't always go the way you want it to. That's life. Deal with it. Kind of like how the Millennial Kingdom already happened. Dudes are still getting their knickers in a twist over that one. They're often telling me how I'm crushing their hopes of making the cut and that I should repent of that. I hate to break it to you then, because I'm about to shatter your dreams for the second time. Dudes may wear kilts in the kingdom, but the required attire at this dinner party is dresses. It was while reading Hebrew Revelation that the discovery came about. The passage, as everybody knows, derives from chapter 14 of that book. I have taken the time to write it down so that you can't, in the very least, claim that I'm making it up. Read it and weep. Chapter 14 of Revelation in the Hebrew, or Hebrew to English. And I saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 and the name of his father was written upon them. And then I heard a voice from the heavens like the noise of great waters and like the sound of great voices. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of a lyre. And they were singing like a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one was able to learn this song except these 144,000 whom he bought from the earth. 
And these are they who did not sin with women, and they are like virgins, and go after the lamb. And they are bought as first fruits of Yahuwah and the lamb, and there is no deceit in their ruach, and they are blameless before the throne of Yahuwah. The Confidential Councils, or Hebrew Revelation 14, 1-5, will all be. The quip about the 144,000 being women has gone missing. It isn't there. Maybe it's a Mandela effect thing. I don't know. For the life of me, I thought it was, it was during an earlier reading. Hmm. In the very least, I included some more illustrations of women strumming their song routine as a tie-in to Revelation, probably playing that new song they'd learned before the throne. Still trying to fill that quota. How many are we up to now? 46? The problem isn't really with the Hebrew, now that I think about it. I didn't actually show you the original language. All I did was feed a line from one English translation or another. And so here it is at long last. That's a screenshot taken from Revelation 14.4, so that once again, you can't claim I'm making this up. The underlying word is right there. Yep, we have a match with what I just spilled out. Its English equivalent is Bethula. Strong's Concordance 1330, look it up. It is a feminine noun employed all throughout scripture and always refers to a maiden or a virgin, or in the very least, somebody's daughter. Usually it is used to infer a young woman who is separated and secluded from having intercourse with men, hence the virgin. Its earliest mention can be found in Beersheath with, uh, with Revelation 14.4 being the last mention. And here is the first. And I have to quote this because this is the name of my beautiful baby daughter. And it came to pass before he had done uh, speaking that, behold, Rivka came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the woman of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder, and the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin, Betula. Neither had any man known her, and she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. Obviously, Bethula ref references a woman set apart from sexual intercourse with a man. And in fact, Rivka was in every way a model of the 144,000 to come. It wasn't just men which she had refrained from. We don't know her history with idolatry, but she was a young woman, scarcely a day beyond childhood, 10 according to, uh, to Yeshar or Jasher, with the age of accountability finally upon her, Rivka chose to remove herself from the stench of her father's idols in pursuit of Abraham's Elohim, Yahuwah. I am furthermore showing you dozens of passages all dealing with a Bethula reference, and in every single one of them, they're feminine maidens. You may need to take out a magnifying glass. Supposing the 144,000 are men, then it would be the only case in the whole of Scripture when Bethula is intended to be read that way, which is an odd habit for any writer of Scripture. Yochanan would furthermore be frustrating the expectation of his reader, who has devoted his life to the Torah and the prophets and has only recently fallen upon the latest bestseller. Defying it, actually. And in fact, I will argue that the reader whom I've just described, being taught scripture in the intended order rather than the reverse, and inverted manner which Christianity expects of their neophyte, would never view it through any other lens, if they read that word uh, Bethula. 
Since I am always trying to keep up with the nuh-uh game, I highly suspect the biggest objection to the 140,000 uh, women will be the line where it reads, and these are they who did not sin with women, and they are virgins. You're probably wanting to know why it would stress not sinning with women if it is women and not men being referenced. First off, your canon is already describing them as virgins. It would be like him saying it twice. They are virgins and they are virgins. Not having intercourse with women is a given. There's nothing inherently sexual in the idea of sinning with uh, women. Just so you guys read that right. I'm not saying that there's nothing sinful in the idea, but there's nothing inherently sexual in that line, um, sitting with women. The modern reader assumes that to be the case because they have already been taught to read men into the text. I have already shown you that Rivka was the perfect prototype. If it could be said of her that she did not sin with women, then we, might, then we could all conclude that idolatry is being referenced. A good example might be the women mourning for Tammuz in Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 13 through 15. Those women were sitting with other those women were sitting with other women. And now for the reason why I brought you here. When last we left off, the sons of the Cold Wall were describing the mountain of Mekilzedek in an uttermost north country via Psalm 48. I purposely didn't finish it. What happened is I stumbled upon one of those Bethula references and the wheels started turning, which pretty much catches you up to the present. Assuming you've read thus far or listened thus far and in a forwards motion, no less, then you have personally watched the factory smokestacks prove their work. Picking up uh, right around where we last left off, here are the Bethula of Psalm 48. Rejoice, be glad, Mount Zion, there it is, dance around in circles, daughters, Bethula of Yehuda, on accounts of your judgments. Turn yourself around in a circuit, encompass Zion, behold, fasten your path, let it cut a circle around her, count her watchtowers, inscribe their number on a roll, direct your mind, settle it over your heart like a garment, accurately contemplate her military might her fortresses, for the intent that you may inscribe on a roll, that you might narrate to the generation that it circles after and the age that follows. Interesting. Psalm 48, 11 through 13. It seems to me that the 144,000 of Revelation are being described. First of all, they are daughters, virgin daughters, your first tip-off. A great many of them, though we are not given a number. What are they doing but dancing around the Zion circuit with songs of rejoicing on their mind. The prerogative they are given is to narrate all that Yahuwah has done for them. Particular, particular to their lyrics is the military might of Zion. They are, and keep in mind, this is the military might that the whole world, the Confederation of Kings wants to surround, right? They are told to count the watchtowers and the fortresses and then let everyone know about how foolish any coalition of kings would be to confront it. I figure this is their way to make the men feel good about their manliness, especially if the men had high ambitions of becoming one of the 144,000, theologically speaking, but then realize after being beheaded that it would require a dress. Men have fragile egos, you know. At least now I am not robbing you of every last hope. You can still man up and be chivalrous. 
knowing that you two can protect the ladies of the realm, while you go about Zion letting everyone, or while they go about Zion letting everyone know how good you look in a kilt or a suit of armor. Not being one of the 144,000 has its perks. Of course, there's always you know, the dragons of the realm to go slay too. Upon starting my present investigation into the hidden wilderness, Pearl was the very first book that I read on the subject. Wait, let me rephrase that. I didn't even realize that the hidden wilderness was a thing until I decided to give the medieval poem a casual review, not knowing what I discover within. It's like I've already stated, the research required for a project such as this isn't exactly common knowledge and may in fact be unprecedented. Even if the Isle of Fortune or the Blessed Land, whatever you want to call it, has been discussed among some medieval experts such as J.R.R. Tolkien. For every word I've yet written, consider the sheer number of reading hours required. Well, Pearl was one of them. If I have been silent on the mysterious novella-length poem up until now, it's because I've had some theological questions to work through. I am already giving away too much when stating the 144,000 was one of them. In fact, I, I read it, and, uh, well, you'll see that they're referred to as, as women in here, and I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with that until uh, we broke out Revelation. Pearl is considered to be one of the most important surviving Middle English works made available to us today. And mystery is an understatement. Nobody knows who wrote it. There are scarce few theories out there, but every one of them is a wild guessing game. Though it is uh, thought to be 14th century in origin, only one copy has survived. Very little of anything is known about its previous ownership prior to 1824, when it was finally introduced to the academic community, making Pearl yet another post-mud flood discovery. Well, here is the poem's plot. A father mourning the loss of his daughter, whom he refers to as his Pearl, that's where we get the title of the book, falls asleep in the very garden where she is buried. And then this is what we read. Suddenly, my spirit, my ruach, rose from that spot, while in body I remained asleep on the mound, and by God's grace, my spirit embarked on a quest to where I was in the world. Now, if you guys want to know why I don't say Elohim there, I'm just trying to keep true to the, the, uh, the ancient, uh, like the Welsh language, and I, I was looking at the original writing, and it's like, it's like God, like almost like G-A-W-D, almost like a New Jersey person would say it or something. But my soul was set down where cliffs split the sky, and I turned my face towards a forest where astounding stones astonished the eye. No one would believe what light they lent, what gleaming glory shone from them. Never on this earth did a human hand weave cloth so exquisite in ornament. Ornamenting the hills to every side were crystal cliffs of the clearest form. In and about stood bright-colored woods, Trees with trunks of Indian blue, layers of leaves like burnished silver, shivered and shook on every bough. When clear daylight glided across them, they glinted and glimmered with a dazzling gleam. The grinding gravel which crunched underfoot was precious pearl of the Orient. So even sunbeams seemed dark and dim 
outshone by opulent ornaments. Pearl six through seven. Seems pretty evident where the dead girl's father has ended up. The Isle of Fortune. He even calls it such, but we needn't hear the name from his lips when, in fact, the description is self-evident by this point. He then, and keep in mind, in this book, he's not saying he's on some distant planet or anything. He's, he's still on the Earth in the greater realm. He then goes about exploring the unknown portions of our world in a state of ecstasy, finding all sorts of birds in the trees. He describes rivers of glass over brilliant stones, shimmering like distant stars in a wintry sky. He encounters uh, brooks filled, oh, brook-filled valleys and splitted meadows, wetlands, streams with steep slopes spun like gold. We are given many of the same observations as every other explorer of this world, like this one. The moon cannot practice her own powers in that place. She is pockmarked and pitted and impure in person, added to which it is never nighttime. How could the moon casting her moonbeams from celestial circuits hope to compete with the lights of the sh that sheens off the stream surface? The planets are pitifully poor in comparison, and, this, and the sun too dim by some distance. So he's saying the sun doesn't even go there. The riverbanks were bordered by bright trees, which bore on their boughs the twelve fruits of life, Twelve times a year those trees offer harvest, their riches returning monthly like the moon, uh, Pearl 90. No moon, it is never night. Observations we have already made in other accounts. The hidden wilderness is so far removed from the sun's circuit that it needed depend upon its light. Not even the planets can be viewed there. Also, for those of you curious as to how the appointed times might be counted out, we learned that the trees offer a new harvest of fruit 12 times per year. We knew that already with the Tree of Life in Revelation, but here it is spilled out for us that the rotunda of fruit is comparable to the returning moon. I find that really interesting. So instead of a moon there, you just have the, the, the circuit of fruit. Consistent with nearly all reports, is the uncrossable river. Well, some were capable of venturing beyond, but only those deemed worthy, and certainly not the dead girl's father. Eventually, he pulls up to the said river, the one I've encountered in so many different reads. Beyond that river, he reports a crystal cliff, brilliantly bright, radiant with glorious gleaming rays, and at the foot of the summit, a child. He recognizes the child. The child is his daughter, the pearl he had long sought after. He stands there for a while spellbound. Speech has evaded him, and so he stares into her shimmering face, ivory white. He studies her uh, flu de lis figure. And what that says that in the book, it's kind of interesting. I want to look more into that from the, I've looked so much into it from the occult point of view. I'd like to look into it from a potential uh, point of view from another angle. Her, her splendid robes of fine linen, you see, you see her dressing in linen, I find that fascinating, luminously white, open at the sides, every hem stitched with fabulous pearls, as are her flowing sleeves and gown. Even the crown set upon her head is studded with them, with pearls. Betwixt the pearls, she is expertly fashioned with flowers round about. Her hair lays lightly around her shoulders, shining, he says, like spun gold. In that country, she finally tells him, they are all kings and queens, though certainly not equal in glory. 
Specific to her own standing, here is how she describes herself. That incomparable pearl then spoke. I am unblemished and without blame. Honors I hold with my head held high. But incomparable I never implied. The brides who live with our lamb in bliss are a hundred and forty-four thousand strong. There it is. As is written in the book of Revelation, St. John saw them gathered together on the hill of Sion, or Zion, that sacred knoll. And in the apostles' dream, they were dressed for their wedding ceremony there on the summit in the city of New Jerusalem. Pearl 66. And there it is. In another passage, 76 to be exact, she is described as a wife chosen for Christ's chamber. I have no idea as to what's going on, though I will let you make of that what you will. Fact of the matter is, I have long argued that New Yerushalayim hasn't touched down from heaven yet, whereas my detractors claim that's proof in the pudding that I am wrong about everything and that the Millennial Kingdom hasn't happened yet. They will squint their eyes at the horizon, turning their necks about like a sarcastic pigeon, claiming, where's New Jerusalem, Noel? Squawk! Well, it looks like the writer Pearl is claiming that it already has touched down, potentially making us both wrong. I mean, that freaked me out, guys, when I read that. I was, I was like... There's a guy on the earth writing this book, Pearl, in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, claiming that New Jerusalem already touched down on the earth, and it was there presently, and that only those who went to the, uh, the hidden wilderness could see it, and that there was a darkness surrounding it that nobody in our room could see it. That really freaked me out when I saw that written down. Ultimately, I won't be using Pearl as a final authority, though it is a vision and may be directing the writer towards a future events uh, when it comes to New Jerusalem, as I pointed out with the visions of Paul. That's where this spiritual entryway to the city derives from the mountain of Kilzedek. Whatever the case may be, however this works on a spiritual level, the question as to why New Jerusalem cannot be seen upon our horizon has already been satisfactorily answered in my mind. Darkness surrounds this realm in that one. We already saw that with the uh, Paleo-Hebrew. Uh, there's a darkness that surrounds Yahuwah, that he hides himself from us. It cannot be seen, nor will it, until Yahuwah wishes it so. Another way of saying this is that most fail to appreciate the possibility that our sunlit world is, in fact, the outer darkness. One only needs to read between the lines to see that realization in the poem. And what do we have here? This is from Pearl 27. Now judge for yourself if you have spoken in the manner a man should address the Almighty. You say out loud you will live in this land. This is his daughter speaking to her uh, father. You say out loud you will live in this land. I think you must plead for permission first. And such a favor could well be refused. Wow, that goes against modern Christianity. This is Dark Age, Middle, uh, you know, middle Ages theology right here like she's saying like get down on your hands and knees plead for forgiveness and he might uh you know he might refuse your request and you wish to pass over this water course but first you must plot a different path i love this your cold corpse must sink through the soil it was forfeited by our ancestor adam who misguided it in the garden of eden Every man must experience cruel demise before God in his judgment will grant the crossing. Pearl 27. 
And keep in mind, this is on this earth. This is not a different spiritual realm. The ultimate purpose of Pearl seems to be the very thing which I've been attempting to convey throughout my entire investigation. That the story of the Millennial Kingdom is the same as humanity. Mankind still chooses rebellion in the end, despite having Yahushua HaMashiach as their declared king. Pearl's father has the gall to stand within the confines of a terrestrial paradise. Repeat, and, and by the way, it never claims this place is Eden too, which was uh, strongly in its favor in my opinion, because Eden is a different place. Repeatedly thrusting the king's very character into question. He even challenges heaven's law. That's a naughty no-no. His own daughter rebukes him for his brash arrogance. It is his character, saturated with butthurt entitlement, which needs to line up with the kingdom, she declares, rather than the other way around. There is no promise that he might return there. That is the tension of its ending. He must choose his navigational path, as must we all. We don't know at the end of the book whether he will live a life worthy to go to the very place that uh, his daughter went to. And he's like bitter about it because he's like, my daughter died as a young girl. How does she get to go there? And I don't, what did she do to deserve this? He, it's almost like a, like a Job dialogue in a way. Modern Christianity teaches that grace is an abstract concept beyond our own actions, but that isn't at all right. Grace is the very manner of how one shashays into a room. The 144,000 would know all about that. It is only the penitent sort who will succumb to the grace which Scripture speaks of, which is finding grace in Elohim's sight rather than our own. The different path over the water course which she speaks of is obedience to the Father through the innocence of a child. All right, so that's it for tonight on um, what I wanted to present on the hidden wilderness. And my throat is really scratchy tonight because. Spring has already arrived to South Carolina, and the pollen is wild and crazy out there, and everything is yellow. So I'm going to hand it over to you guys and let, let me know what you thought about that. that. There was a lot of information there. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope it was informative. Um, as you guys know, I put a lot of work into seeking this stuff out. And I, I really, I mean, my agenda here is just a, I, I never thought I would go down the road. It wasn't in my thinking that the 140,000, 144,000 would be women. I know that in Camp Torah, there's a lot of pressure to succumb to the idea that they're like these badass, like, uh, you know, military, like guards for hire or something like that. But um, anyways, let me know what you guys thought. Well, I just want to start out by saying, Bravo, and thanks for not being scared to say the things that you do. I mean, who knows, like, if it's 100% true and you're absolutely right, but you definitely have compelling cases for so much stuff. And even though I don't show up all the time, every time I do, I'm glad I did, because I love hearing stuff from you. And I think you're hilarious, too. <laughs> Thank you, Desmond. I'm glad you're here as well. I'm always happy when I'm like, I look and I'm like, oh, Desmond came into the room. I haven't seen him in a, in a couple months, two or three months, but it's good to see him again. Uh, Douglas, you're asking, where can you get that book? Well, the name of the book is Pearl. I don't know if you're referring to the book I just read from, which is my book, uh, which will be released in um, about a week uh, to all TUC members. Uh, but uh, the book Pearl is, uh, there's, you know, it's public domain, uh, the 1800s version. So there's a lot of different ones out there. And I 
read from a more modern translation that's very well done. Just look up Pearl. And so can anyone hear me? This is Stephanie Penland. I can hear you. Yay. Okay, so this is my first time I've ever been live to one of your readings, which I just want to say I really appreciate that you take the time to type them out and give us a PDF because I don't learn unless I can read it and take notes next to it and then go back to it. I'm a very slow learner, but when I learn something and I understand it, then, then I really get it. Um, so I really appreciate that. And so something that I have done, uh, like with this book of Pearl, and I heard on uh, Zen's, one of his videos that he did, uh, one of his radio shows, he was talking about the Book of Pearl and it, it just so intrigued me. So what I did was I found the Book of Pearl, I found a PDF app, and then I took all of the text and put it in the PDF app and then it read it to me through a PDF reader, which only works sometimes. Um, so I could listen to it because I just don't have a lot of time. And so I found that if I just take things and then I have the print, I can print it out and then I can listen to it, then I can learn it and understand it. Um, so I don't know, it may be a little too obscure for other people to try and do, but um, just reading and having a printout to read as well as your presentation, it's just excellent. I just thank you. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Now. Uh, Dean was, I got a couple of questions in here. Dean was asking that I could uh, expound on New Jerusalem already being here. All right, well, that's a really good question. You guys know that I'm of the position that New Jerusalem has not come down yet. All right. Uh, that that is the end all of, of his story. Like that's the end end, and then we kick off a whole new cycle. And we're not there yet. Uh, you know, Wait, New Jerusalem. When you say a cycle, do you mean like that twenty-something thousand years in the celestial area of like where we're at in the in the heavenlies? Is that what you're saying with cycle? Oh yeah, that's a good question. No, I I think like in terms of the eighth great day, uh, the, you know, we have oh. a, a week week of history, and then as Enoch says that there will be uh, once you finish it the cycle that there will be more weeks afterwards. It's just going to keep going on and on and on, and we'll have. You know, who is an exciting storyteller? Like, it, I, I can't imagine how exciting it's going to be and all these different, you know, uh, narratives that are going to spring up and, and so on and so forth. So I'm of the opinion, as you guys know, that the New Jerusalem is the very end. Uh, it's particularly, there is there's passages that I've gone over when talking about the thousand-year reign that when people are expected to go there for Sukkot's, it can't possibly be talking about New Jerusalem because New Jerusalem is a place for immortals. It is a place where you have to be completely pure. There are guards at those gates. They're not letting sinners in. All right. However, I can see this played out both ways. I can, you know, I can, I can also see a scenario where maybe New Jerusalem's here. Okay. Just throwing that out there. That would be crazy to think about. It's, it's way more crazy to think about than it not being here yet. Um, but in that case, I've, I've seen references where uh, I've seen it in two references now, uh, the visions of Paul and Pearl. Now, Pearl is not a scripture book. And as I said in here, I'm not going to uh, use that over scripture, obviously, uh, though it, it's a pretty shocking read. Uh, some of the things in there, it's not a perfect read, but it has some really interesting stuff uh, that that could be a possibility that you have a guy during the dark, the dark age, the Middle Ages saying that it's already here. 
that that's pretty that's pretty profound. Now, Josh is saying that um, he he wants me to clarify. All right. So the proposition is this, he says. Britain is where Yahusha ruled after his return, and then they left to another place on the plain outside the reach of our light. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. And this is this is what I need to uh, clarify more. So when when I started out my investi- my investigation into the Millennial Kingdom happening, I, I had the basic idea, okay, there was a thousand years in our history. At some point, we're not being told about that it happened on this earth. All right? I'm starting to, the more I look into this, um, again, I wasn't there. I'll never really know, right? Until uh, Yahuwah personally fills me in and all matters. I'm starting to get the idea that, let me first talk about what I think about Britain, okay? I have shown you that according to Jeremiah's ministry, he it was a twofold ministry. One is that he was up to uproot Judah, and the next was that he was to plant Israel somewhere else in the land of Ephraim. All right. So we know he we we know that Judah was uprooted, and in fact, there was never a Judean king again from that point forward. Mashiach was declared their king and they rejected him. So he could have been their king, but they rejected him. So the question is, is where did he plant Israel? Because that's never talked about. You know, my theory is that Britain seems like a really good choice. Um, you know, there are people who disagree with that. Fine. Show me where else it was. Uh, I'd be curious to know. I think it was Britain. So the way I see it is I've talked to you guys about how Europe seems to be like the epicenter of the millennial kingdom uh, on this on this side of the realm. Uh, the way I see it is that Britain was like uh, the second is- the second chance at Israel. Okay, uh, the first Israel has been destroyed over here. It's now, you know, it- Revelation ends with it being a haunts of devils. And, you know, it's not a place you want to go. It's a wasteland. It's deserted. That was, Jerusalem was considered the whore, done with. Um, and so now we're looking at a new Zion. We're looking at a new place. And I think that there was like, that was the, the next line. Now, maybe he's done with that again. I don't know. I don't know where the standing is because we don't have books written by Yah to us that are explaining this, right? So when it comes to the hidden wilderness, um, I believe that the hidden wilderness um, was a place res- set apart since creation. It has always been there. It has always been lit. Um, and when Satan was tossed into the abyss, and this is what people have a really hard time understanding when I talk about the Millennial Kingdom. People think that there was only a thousand years of the kingdom. There wasn't. The kingdom is forever. Now, when Yahushua ascended to heaven, he was king of the kingdom. Okay? When he destroyed Jerusalem, and in, in, when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, he was king of the kingdom. I'm looking for a thousand years when Satan was thrown into the abyss, and then when he came out again. As you guys know, I say it's about 500 years after 70 AD. What, what, I, what I'm starting to understand more and more is, I think that that is when the hidden wilderness was disclosed. It was brought out. It was shown to the world. Here it is. It was here all along. These are where the resurrected saints are. Come and enjoy it. And when the rebellion happened... It was then closed off from the world again. And that, this explains globe earth so well. Because you, it doesn't work on a globe earth. You have to have a flat, motionless realm for anything that I'm proposing to work. You guys know this. 
um, hopefully that clarifies that. So um, I, I think the, the hidden wilderness is where it was happening. Um, where the kings, this mountain of Achilles I talked about, that the kings of the earth, um, the royals were saying, let us go walk in this path. Follow me. Come over here. Let's do the Torah. They were referring to the mountain of Achilles which is in the hidden wilderness. Okay, so that's that's my proposal. Um, that that has been as I'm looking more and more at the thousand years of history of the Millennial Kingdom, I sometimes wonder if a lot of the history were fed. Yeah, I know we're lied to about everything, guys. I know how that works, but it, that it's not just all made up. That when we're talking about the the lion and the lamb, it, it specifically says. Well, I know it's the wolf and the lamb, uh, but it, it's the lion and the lamb to me. It specifically says that it's on the mountain of Yahuwah. It's on his holy mountain, the mountain of Achilzedek, Mount Zion, all right? This isn't referring to Israel. And so that is to say that if you left that area, would the lion and the lamb lay down to each other, with each other? That's a good question to ask. Uh, was it worldwide, or, or was it just there in his holy mountain where the lion lay down with the lamb, all right? Things to consider. I'm not telling you what the conclusion is. I'm just saying... I think it's worth considering. All right. Now, as I was talking there, a lot of people were writing, and um, I missed a lot of, if you guys had questions or anything like that. So forgive me. Does anyone else have anything they want to say? This is Stephanie Penland again. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes. Yeah, so you message you just mentioned the it is the lion and the lamb to you and not the lion with the wolf. Um and I literally just discovered and had issues with the whole idea of my scriptures are being changed. And I have dozens of Bibles. I have Sefer, I have all sorts of different Bibles. Okay. I even have like my Bible that my grandmother gave me that I ripped out a page when I was like a year old and I was obsessed with eating it. And like, I have all these different Bibles, right? I'm obsessed with my Bibles. Um, and then finding scriptures that are changed, that are different, that talk about like my Messiah having breasts and I mean, just words that just don't even make sense. Anyway, um, so you just mentioned that. Like, to you, you remember the lion and the lamb. That's what I remember. But it says lion and the wolf. And, like, my 13-year-old who's gone through uh, a Christian private school, he knows it as lion and the wolf. And we've gone, like, over and over and over in these debates. Like, is this, is this a big thing? Is this something I should be worried about? Something I should be praying about? I've, like, I've written a lot of words on this already, just trying to do my own study. Or is this something I should just set aside? I don't know. What what does this community kind of think about this? What do you you're think about? To, you're referring to Mandela effect. Yeah. I, well, um, I mean, people call it this Mandela effect, which actually, I mean, I feel I sound really ignorant when I say this, but I thought it was a there's Mandela and Mandela, and I didn't know the difference between the two. I didn't know what that meant. Um, I don't I don't associate it with this whole like Mandela CERN thing i just associate it with like the deception at the end of time in in revelation 20. right okay so the name mandela gets the name from nelson mandela and 
Anybody from South Africa in here? Maybe they could tell me a little bit better. So more Mandela, Mandela, those two things are linked, right? I'm not just. I guess I don't know what you mean by Mandela and Mandela, but uh, I'm talking about Nelson Mandela. Yeah, Nelson Mandela. Sorry. Yeah, and many people had it. It it, it started becoming the Mandela effect <clears throat> because it started with the observation of many that Nelson Mandela died in prison. I think it was like back mm -hmm. in the '80s or something like that. They had that memory, and all of a yeah. sudden he's on the scene, and the presidents are shaking his hand. They're like, "What in the world?" I remember this guy died. Um, right. Right. So. You know, and then of course CERN is mixed up into it. Now I, I, I don't know. I don't know about it. I don't know if CERN is the cause of it or not. I don't know. Um I, I try purposely to keep out of the um explanation of how they do it. What I mm -hmm. do know is that there are changes happening. Okay, and they're everywhere. Um I I don't agree with a lot of the Bible changes. Most of the proclaimed Bible changes are in the King James, King James Version. Now, there are, so not translations as a whole. Now, the Lion and the Lamb is, is unique because, or I should say the Wolf and the Lamb, because that isn't just a King James issue. That is scripture-wide. That is across the board. Many right. of us, many of us uh, remember reading that. We were just having, I was having that discussion today with someone. Um, and... We have now reached the generation, interestingly enough, where we are about 15 years out from the change, 15, 20 years from the change of okay. the lion and the lamb, where people, uh, there's teenagers and stuff growing up. Yeah, they're being taught it's the wolf and the lamb. That's really interesting. But my 90-year-old um, grandmother, who now lives here in where we live, um, she absolutely insists it's the lion, the lamb and not the wolf and the lamb and her Bible's wrong. And it like oh, it really created a big, big problem for her. Um, it, it's a big thing. What do we do with it? So I don't know. I'm going to, I'll send you, you know what, if I could send you what I've written and sort of the research that I've done and you can take it and you can work your, I don't know scripture uh i don't want to say magic it's the wrong word um brilliance in writing and making things come to life and like putting all those pieces together that'd be great uh because it's it's just mind-boggling and i just don't know what to do with it where to go with it but i know that i know that my messiah would not give me a way out he always gives us a way out and he always gives it to us through scripture, whether that's scripture in the canon or scripture in these new books that we're reading, right? Like right. there's always there's always an answer and there's always a way out. And so all these people are like, oh, you can't read your Bibles. I'm like, no, that just doesn't sound right to me. That sounds like a deception on top of a deception. You can't just not read your Bible just because you don't understand something, right? Right. So here's my response to this on what to do with this. I personally think this is where uh, Genesis 6 research really comes in handy. Okay. Genesis 6, the Nephilim and all that, and recognizing how before the flood, how the watchers as well as the, 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 the sons of Cain, the, the Nephilim, completely destroyed the earth. I mean, we're talking about genetic manipulation, changing creatures into multiple different things. And to the point where Yahuwah, to be merciful towards man, almost had to destroy the earth and start fresh. Right. Uh, so we're looking, we're entering a time in history, which I understand is unsettling for many people. 
Uh, but we are seeing where the earth is being corrupted and manipulated on every level. I mean, we're, we're seeing the geoengineering. We're seeing the what is an organic product anymore? I mean, we could fight for it, but it's like seeds are all being manipulated. Right. Um, there I, it's is really organic. yeah, it's it's really um, it's really unsettling when I will go buy organic fruits and I'll go home and bite into it. And I'm going, this is seedless. How can you have seedless organic? But if you just clean them in certain cleaners or things and things come out of them and you're like, wait a minute, right? This, right. this, so, should, this connection shouldn't happen. Right. So, and I'm not trying to divert from this. So going back to the Mandela effect, okay, we're, we're yeah. seeing a lot of, yeah. we're seeing a lot of changes out there. Now, I started saying that what's unique about the lion and the lamb is that that is a Bible, uh, Across all translations, it is that's it. That's a change that many of us remember us differently. Most of the changes go to the King James. Now, there are um, uh, and please send me your research. I'd love to look at it and and see if I can do yeah. something with it. Uh, um, uh, one of the there's a saying in the Mandela effect that you know how one thing you know you know one person may be affected by one and not the other, right? I do think that I do think that there are a lot of changes to the King James. One of the big ones for me is bottles. Uh, put you know, put wine into wines, new wineskins, and all translations say wineskins, and only the King James says bottles. And it's like, right. nah, that's some serious gaslighting because King James only people they would never read these other translations. It is not bad memory. They would never say bottles. They say wineskins. So. There are now when you said you know that Yahuwah has tatas, you know, uh, that's in Revelation. I can't remember the exact yeah. word. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't, I would not say that that's a change. I actually think he does. Um, and I've seen other texts that have, have insinuated the same thing. Um, and so one thing I try to be real careful with is that what happens is with a lot of the Mandela effect, uh, so called Bible scholars, um, they I've noticed a trend where they start saying things that their version of Elohim. I don't like this, what it's implying. This has got to be, and it's using some of the archaic language in the King James, no doubt. This has got to be changed. I don't like this. Um, I've seen that. I've fallen for it for, um, personally, one of the big debates I've had on here was, uh, to the point of, I think, offending some people, was on whether or not Moshe had horns or not, you know? And the thing is, is I kind of had to secede a little bit um, on the idea that there was something pagan about the idea of him, him having horns. It's not pagan. So a lot of the Mandela effect people are saying, no, there's no way that Moses would ever have horns. That's like, that's making him out to be a devil, or like a gargoyle. And actually it's not. It's just, it's, it's, it's our lack of knowing Hebrew culture. Now, that's not to say that it originally did say horns, but it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily pagan either. And this is one of the things I, I try to be careful with when, when people show me biblical changes, um, and um, but at the end of the day, um, it is I recognize that Yah is in control, and um, as soon as I start seeing changes, I'll start crying foul when I start seeing like Moses say things like the Torah sucks, don't do it, hey. nobody, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm gonna be like, okay, now you now you've gone too far, you know? Right. So my, I guess my test so far has been, is this change saying that the, the Torah is untrue and that everything in the Torah is wrong and done away with again, right? As the Christians say, or 
Is this just something we don't understand yet? And if, say, the enemy is allowed to change scripture because it's written by man, right? The lying pen of the scribes. We don't just do away with it. We pray about it. We fast about it, right? We contemplate it. We write it down and we search it out, right? That's the right way to go about this as um, somebody who's seeking, right? Is that we search, we seek, we pray, we fast, and then we go and look at all the different texts, not just one, right? Um, so anyway, thank you. Thank you for your thoughts on that. I just... It's just something that jarred me. And um, I don't know if m most of you don't know me yet. I've only ever spoken maybe once or twice before. Um, recently, I've been released to speak and have conversations and to say things. Um, and then when I say released, I mean, I came to Torah in November of 2019 uh, through the, the Ruach back then I knew him as the Holy Spirit, and now I know the Ruach as the, the Ruach HaKodesh, but uh, through just the Ten Commandments saying, hey, remember, remember this, remember that Sabbath is important. And so we started our Torah walk in Sabbath, right before Christmas and Thanksgiving and right before all these things um, as a family. Uh, so, but it's taken many, many years through COVID and all this stuff, to finally get to this point where the rock just said, okay, start finding people, start having conversations, start talking, start, just go, like go and explore almost as if this is like a playground of excitement. Even though these are like really deep, heavy concepts, I feel like we're kind of in this playground of like, like what next or what now? Like, what don't I know? What can you teach me now? So anyway, that's sort of a small snippet of who I am. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the fourth commandment is, that's like half the battle, guys. I mean, it, it, like she said, it is literally the only command where it says, remember, do not forget and it is the only of the 10 specifically that mankind has forgotten, redefined, snubbed. And you try to point this out to people and it's just like speaking to a brick wall. But yeah, that was the same thing with us. I mean, when we crossed over into Sabbath, uh, it was for us, it was February 2019 as a family. And it was through the ministry of Rob Skiba and, and speaking to Rob on the phone. And he was the guy that convinced me, uh, yeah, bless him uh, for all that he's done. And uh, it was like crossing over into a new spiritual. I mean, we knew immediately, like this is this is incredible. We knew we we crossed into something like magnificent. So, all right. Anybody else have any thoughts on tonight? Yeah, one one thing that um, um, that kind of struck me and uh, the uh, the river that you know no one can pass that that really reminded me of. Um, Pilgrim's Progress at the end where, you know, there's that river that you have to pass through uh, before you can reach a celestial city, which, so I was wondering if maybe, you know, obviously in Pilgrim's Progress, that's an allegory for, for death. I was wondering if maybe, you know, that river is, you know, in these other, you know, stories of the hidden wilderness is, uh, is that similar allegory. I um no, I'm right there with you. It's, um, that has crossed my mind too. I've thought about that. And, for all, 
if anyone here has not read The Pilgrim's Progress, which despite the fact that uh, Bunyan was not on, on board with the Torah, you know, he was, uh, um, like I said, you know, Sabbath is the half the battle. Once you cross that, that threshold, the rest falls into play. The feast, all that kind of stuff. And so he was a Sunday guy. But Pilgrim's Progress uh, would, it, I don't know how modern Christianity can even deal with it because he was all about obedience and fighting off the deception and the lies and, you know, constantly fighting off the arrows and wearing your armor and going on this long journey that nobody wants to go. I mean, it's, it's incredible read all the same. Um, even if he doesn't get everything right. And of course I don't get everything right. So that's okay. Uh, but at the end of it, the only way to get to the celestial city is to, to cross the river Jordan. Um, uh, but this river in this instance, you, you die. Like it's, heavily implied if it's not stated that he like drowns in it like nobody can cross uh, a living mortal soul um and uh so yeah, that that's interesting because it's in it seems to be a theme of the hidden wilderness as well yeah and we just discovered i you know we're big big cs Lewis fans but uh we just discovered this he wrote a book called the pilgrim's regress and we're going through that now it's fascinating I've never read that one, and I've always wanted to. Now you've uh, wet my appetite. I might need to do that. Hey, Noel. Can you hear me? I can hear you, Michael. Awesome, awesome. Uh, so I was talking to a buddy who's on the same like wavelength as us at our Shabbat group, and we were discussing what you were going to talk about today. And um, um, basically, like you were saying, if the New Jerusalem came down already and all that, and we were discussing how that would change the Bible. And really, if that's true, then the Bible, like 99.9% of it is already in the past, right? Because, you know, in, at least in my current worldview is like, hey, we still have Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. But in reality, if that's true, then that was out of order. And we really only have a few paragraphs left. Um, that and the Great White Throne, what do, you, what do you think about that as far as the Bible is concerned? Right. Now... Let me just state here, just so we're clear, uh, everyone, we're clear that in both instances where I see reference to New Jerusalem in the hidden wilderness, uh, has having touched down, is in the visions of Paul, and um, in in Pearl, and now they're both visions. In Pearl, he doesn't physically go there; he goes there in a vision, right? Um. And with Paul, with visions of Paul, if if you believe that that is legitimate at all, um, it's interesting enough. I, I I ordered it in the Sefer. Uh, Pigeon did visions of Paul in the Sefer, uh, so it's a it's a great read. Uh, so if Paul wrote this during his life, then clearly New Jerusalem hadn't touched down yet. There's no way. Uh, so clearly it's a vision. So I I don't I don't know, but yeah it. I guess I'm I'm trying to in my mind, uh, Michael. Still, I think we all are, and you know, I, I was I was actually uh, writing to Michael earlier today, asking him some questions like, "Hey, what do you think about this and that?" Uh, because I guess I'm trying to work all this out, right? What does it mean? What it What does it mean if it hasn't come down? What is it What does it mean if it has come down? I don't know. I'm I'm with you guys. I'm just trying to figure this out, right? I'm just just trying to see where the the evidence leads, and um, I think a a huge difference. I think and. I think with with what I'm doing, with what most people doing is, I see most people they have their theology worked out. They have this like this, uh, you know, 
they have all these bullet points you got to address and if it doesn't fit with what they have you're wrong it has to fit perfectly in here and so people with that mindset they'll look at my research and go this guy doesn't know what he's talking about this guy is he's lunatic he he, he hasn't been taught properly right he hasn't been initiated into our cult thinking um so i don't know guys so i don't know yeah michael what are your thoughts i mean you in your talk today uh <laughs> well no we were just logically trying to work it out um as far as what the bible because you know i was telling him you know i'm not 100 percent sold yet i you know i have to there's a lot of holes that i i personally see the only way that would work for me is if new jerusalem was out of order and came before revelation 20 because you know we were discussing like you said on the side about when the wedding happened and we're trying to figure that out and you know i shared with you that luke verse about where he comes he, he's already at the wedding and he's coming back for other people and then what we just what we happen to see today in matthew 8 that i posted in the uh short season room where it says the sons of those who reigned with him will be cast out in outer darkness and like just stuff like that it's just a new concept that i'm trying to piece together um yeah it's very interesting yeah that was okay expand on that because i uh michael was sharing that verse with me as well today and i hope to be talking about the uh the outer darkness here real soon so what are your thoughts on the sons of those who reigned with him right so we're talking about uh the kings and priests the hundred and forty four thousand, maybe right and then there's these children that are cast out is that what you're you're is that how you're reading it yeah, I just posted it in chat and basically Matthew 8 and Yeshua heard, he marveled and said to those who followed, truly I say to you, not even in Israel, have I found such a great belief? And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov in the reign of the heavens. And then, but the sons of the reign shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing. And so, yeah, uh, because everybody's like well, orphan trains or clones, and well, what if it said it in Matthew eight? You know, every you know, then you, you've always said, you know, maybe we are the children of the disobedient, and I think this is what Matthew eight's saying, right there. And I don't know, just like you said, trying to piece it together, and with the extra land and the moon map. I mean, we're just trying to piece it together and do the best we can. Yeah, yeah. I forgot I that. Luke yeah. Um. Let me let me look at at it real quick. It was Luke uh, 12, and start at 35, it says, Let your loins be girded and your lamps burning, and be like men waiting for their master when he shall return from the wedding, that he comes and knocks and they open to him immediately. And it's like, wait, I thought I was the bride. I thought I'm going to the wedding supper. And yet Yeshua is telling these individuals, <laughs> be like men waiting for their master when he shall return from the wedding. And it kind of just throws a wrench into some things. But... I don't know. There's always a wrench <laughs> to confound the wisdom to confound the wisdom of men. Anybody else have any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I actually wanted to ask about there was something that you emphasized when you were reading about see yourself as the plunder of war, and I was actually uh, talking to a friend about slavery they were uncomfortable with Yah permitting slavery in the bible so i gave them like the breakdown of, you know it's not like the slavery that we know of from the movies and stuff like that and how there's hired servants and you know but then there is this other 
kind of slave that's like a permanent slave, which is actually property that's handed down generation to generation. And uh, I was going over the idea that from how I saw it, you know, according to scripture, that there's very few ways that you could even enter that. You know, one would be you're a hired servant, you get to your release date and you don't want to be released, you want to stay, you get your ear nailed to the door, and now you're a forever servant. Or you were born into it because your parents were a forever servant. Or um, you were taken as like, uh, or you were bought, you were bought with a price, like Messiah buys us with a price. Um, you were already a slave and you were purchased from someone else who had, a, had you as a slave, you were purchased and you were bought with a price. But then there was that idea of being taken as a slave from war and it was better to better to be taken as a slave in war than to be killed you know as the opposition in war Every, instead of everybody being killed you take them as slaves and it's a better option for that person than being killed so i wanted i, I was curious on your thoughts of how this us being plundered um the plunder of war uh, kind of plays into that idea or how you kind of saw it from from your perspective that us being the plunder of war well yeah, so I mean, what you just detailed was some rich stuff, and this is one of those things where I want to try to refrain on just commenting the comic because I actually have not done a study, an in-depth study on slavery in the Bible. You know, other than the fact that you know that we in Torah, you know, there are those who you can become an indentured servant. We see Yaakov doing something similar to get to his brides and his sheep and cattle, things like that. There's the the, the there's the the person who wants to remain a servant that, you know, the, the master will kind of nail into his ear on the doorpost. There's things like that, right? Um, one of the things I was actually thinking of, was it, is it in Ephesians? I think it is. Maybe Paul talks about that, uh, that we are like the, um, the, spo the spoils of war, whatever, or what's captioned war. It, well, the way I was taking it when I was reading this is that you're, you're, coming out of this lifestyle of slavery in Egypt, and you have just seen Yah work in these incredible ways that just shakes everyone to the core. I mean, you're on your hands and knees going, this is, you're, you're watching the, the plagues of the, the flies and the, the frogs and the blood and the darkness and the, you know, all these things. And then the angel of death comes through and all the firstborn in the land, you hear the weeping of all the people, and you 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 see the consequence of not having the blood covering you, the blood of the lamb, and you're like, oh my goodness, and you're putting this together with Yeshua, my Savior, and you're 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 coming across. You see that water part, and you cross, and then you watch all of Pharaoh's army gets destroyed, and then you come to the mountain, and you meet the first group of people recorded in the history of the world meets the creator, the father coming down in this fire with these trumpets blasting, the ground is shaking and people are like, uh, -uh I'm not going up there. <laughs> it's just Moses. You go up there. I'm not going up there. And you're hearing his voice speak to you. And just this mentality of like, like, yeah, like this is all you, you did this. You brought us here. We are your spoils of war. We did nothing. This complete relief to be, you know, when you read that Psalm and it's like, you are under the shadow of his wings. You see that was it the Amalekites came and tried to kill them all. And you saw them just get wiped out. And you're just like, wow, you know, this, this is a mighty Elohim. And we are, we, we are nothing to him. Like we are his slaves, you know, that kind of thing that I know that it was, it was, it's a, it would be a comforting thought to see that, you know, who is the one that destroyed the enemy and he took us, we are the spoils of Egypt. 
you know that i just thought that was a really neat thought yeah i didn't really think about it too much when i was you know talking about it like a lot of it came to me as i was explaining slavery biblical slavery to this person and when i was thinking about how all the ways you could become a forever slave when you said plunder of war, I'm like, wow, the first time I ever thought of that was this morning when I was talking about it. And then you go and say the exact same thing. And I just wondered, you know, how you were looking at that. But thanks for thanks for sharing it there. That was really neat. You know, I think there's actually a lot to that idea of us being forever slaves. I mean, not only a slave to sin, and then you're a slave to righteousness. So it's like we were already slaves and we were just bought from once one slave owner sold us to another slave owner and we were bought. But it was also like a conquering and war. Because you know he conquered death itself, he conquered sin. So all of it, I think, plays into this overarching concept. And the only reason, you know, it would be permissible is because it's something Yah does Himself. It's something that is a good thing in and of itself. Uh, because if you go back to the, you know, the big deal for Israel is they want the Muslim nations around them to recognize their faith. And Free flow, it sounds uh, like you faded out. Am I the only one not hearing him now? Okay. Uh, Desmond, did you finish your thought? Uh, yeah, pretty much. There was nothing else, really. Okay. Free flow, I wasn't trying to interrupt you. I, I just, you kind of faded out there. So, okay. Um, yeah, and you guys, one of the exciting things about the Bible, I mean, as you guys know, is that it has like this untapped potential and here I am at least halfway through my life and I feel like I've barely discovered it. And so I'm trying, I'm going to be try real hard to like, when you guys ask me questions and I'm like, yeah, I haven't studied that, you know, it, it, it's okay. Like maybe I'll get to it in the next 40 years. Um, it's not like I'm not trying. So yeah, when it comes to slavery, I just don't want to get into too much on what I haven't studied out. But I agree with you, uh, Desmond, that there is a biblical slavery, and um, it's it, it it looks very different than you know slavery as we are told it is today. Yeah, for sure. That was one of the things that she didn't understand was all the protections and everything built in that they don't show. That is not in the movie slavery that we see nowadays. You know, like if you injured your slave, you got to go free. If your slave ran away and someone found him, he wasn't allowed to bring you back to his master because you wouldn't have ran away unless you were being mistreated. Like there's so many protections built in there that says if you're going to have a slave, you have to be good to him. Otherwise, you're not allowed to have him. We were just um, this is this is like perfect timing for us is we were just reading the you know those passages in in exodus it talks about that and uh and coincidentally we were also um going through a um like a, a sunday school series that bruce gore has on his youtube channel um about um uh, uh the 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 years leading up to the uh, american revolution and uh, the the colonists at jamestown <clears throat> Um, you know, there were some some uh, pirates that came up one day with uh, some captives from uh, Africa. And the colonists at Jamestown didn't know what to do about this. They couldn't just, you know, let let these uh, captives, you know, continue on with the pirates. So they 
They negotiated. They they bought the uh, captives from the pirates, and then they negotiated with the captives, and they're like, "Okay, here, you can be indentured servants for us for seven years, and then um, you, you know, will be given your freedom." And uh, and that's what happened. They they literally followed the Torah in how they dealt with with these people. But we are not told about any of this by our modern history books. I posted another verse that really, you know, gets me thinking. It's Joel too. Everybody has their opinion on it, but it says, "Blow a ram's horn in Zion. Set set apart a fast. Call an assembly. Gather the people. Set the assembly apart. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing babes. Let a bridegroom out from his room and a bride from her dressing room. So there's a wedding. Then it says, let the priest come out. Weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people." And do not give your inheritance to reproach for the Gentiles to rule over. And why should they say among the people, where is their Elohim? And basically, in, in like, is it, I don't know if that's Yahweh or Yahweh, be jealous for his land and spare his people. And then he comes and does it. And so this is just another kind of verse. Obviously, everybody has their own interpretation. But of a wedding happening while other people are outside of that. And so, you know, uh, I don't know what to make of that. That could kind of go like follow what we're talking about here. Like there's a wedding yeah. he has to save his other people. But. Yeah, I, and I guess what I'm trying to figure out at this point is, and this maybe help will shed a lot of light on this, ha ha ha, light versus darkness, because uh, when you know when the timing of this wedding happened, when did it happen? Has it happened yet? And because you know, I'm looking at the moon map, and you guys know that I I think that's totally legit. The moon map, it is like the most legit thing in my opinion. And you, so you're, you know, this, the symbol, and I'll be talking about this. So act surprised when I talk about this in a few weeks, I'll be giving a presentation on this is you look at all the, the crescent uh, moon shapes all, all across the realm on many, many flags going way back into the middle ages. And in fact, uh, Islam, I think that's misdirection. I, I think that they did not use that as their official logo until the last 100 years or so, 150, like post-mud flood. Not to say that Islam has never used it, but it was used by Christians and all across the board. And some people will say it's the, uh, the waxing moon or some people the waning moon depending on which way but anyways the, the south carolina state flag where i'm at right now it's it's the crescent moon and i think it's to reflect to where we're at in the realm now if you remember the prog clock uh, and the the way the the circuit of the sun goes around the entire earth over so many years you know i i, I must you know that what 20 something thousand years um, the the inward circle of a crescent would be where the sun and the moon are. Where the lit up section of the moon is, guys, that's the hidden wilderness. That's the place that's lit up without the sun. It, it gives forth its own light, right? So what's funny, it's in, in, in very platonic terms, you know, like the allegory of the cave. The sun is the land of the shadows. It's actually the land of darkness. And sometimes I wonder, especially spiritually, and that's what Plato would talk about. I, I sometimes wonder if we're in the, if we're in the outer darkness, maybe that's the big, uh, one of the big, you know, reveals of the next twilight zone episode that, uh, we're the children of those who were cast out 
when the wedding feast happened. Now, I'm, I'm not saying the wedding feast has happened yet, and I need to really kind of clamp down on that and figure that out. Maybe you guys can help. But that's something that I keep crossing my mind. I talked about it tonight in my paper. So Someone's going to say something. You, you talk about, are we the children of the outer darkness? And again, coming back to the Ten Commandments that Yeshua showed me back in 2019, that to remember my my sabbath and keep it holy but also in that there's so much there like we are what it is what sorry hold on let me think um that he blesses how many curses the generations of thousands but he blesses those that um remember his mitzvah right to the third and fourth generation and I clearly heard him say in my prayer time that you are of the third and fourth generation who are waking up. You are this person. You are the the children and you're the mothers of the nursing babies. Like I'm calling you because you're the lowly. You're the you're the meek of the earth and you're the ones that I don't know that people look at us and we're like, yeah, we're moms and we're like struggling just to keep our children alive in this world, right? But he's speaking to us. He's speaking to the moms. He's speaking to us lowly people who have no clout, no standing, no, you know what I mean? We don't have credentials. I mean, I might have a degree, but I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I don't have credentials. And yet he speaks these massive things. And so when we read Joel 2 and we see these amazing words, it's like they leap off the page. Um, So oftentimes I would say you definitely speak words that, um, I have thought or I've mentioned to people or I've mentioned to pastors and in times <laughs> like laugh at me like, what are you talking about? And just brush it aside. And until I came to Sabbath three years ago, like I just didn't even consider that my thoughts and my ideas here were actually from the Holy Spirit, from the Ruach HaKodesh, who was trying to like pull me out of that, you know, anyway. I just want to encourage someone out there, all of us, all of us nursing moms with children, that we're still part of this and that we are an integral part of what Yeshua wants to do here. Um, and it's really interesting talking about, are we this, are we that, are we post, are we pre? And it, sometimes it doesn't really matter. It really matters how we raise our children, that we speak into them life, that we speak into them the words that Yeshua would want us to speak, that we would um, raise them in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that we would raise them to want to know the truth, right? Like how we would do this day to day, because I mean, I geek out on all of your words and all, like I literally geek out on it and I'll print it out and then I'll go and research and I'll, I'll go off on a tangent and then my children need to eat and they need shoes and they need clothes and they need my time and they need to like, I need to put a band-aid on their owie and then we need to have like weeks of just them. Um, I don't know. Did it like it all gets so interesting and so messy all at the same time. And but it's so brilliant and amazing. So I just sorry, guys, I just went off on a tangent really late at 7:13 when I should be putting my children to bed and they're all just like hanging out downstairs. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know what you uh, expressed uh, about 
you know, the intellectual side and then, you know, the family and putting on the band-aids on the owie. I mean, you, you described my life as well. So I think okay. you described, I think you described most of our lives here. And uh, okay. I think we can all relate to that. So we come on here, we're discussing like all these like serious, like these like conspiracies and stuff. And then like, you know, the meat of the day really is you got to get in there, you got to cook dinner and, you know, clean the house and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I got to do that as well. And I think one to kind of go off what you were saying, um, and thank you, SP Mama. Please come by more often, and uh, it's it, you're welcome here. Is for everyone in the tour community that is very much against this, I all the different pre post ism, millennialism isms, all that kind of stuff. Is is that I think we can hopefully all agree that we're all in the di diaspora. Like we have all at present, uh, we are all outside of the land, wherever that land is, we're not in it. And, um, you know, it, it is, it really, it comes down to at the end of the day, how are we living our lives? And, um, a big part of that is how we get along with those who have a different opinion than us. Do we still love them? Do we ostracize them and blah, blah, blah. You guys know how it is. And, um, you know, I, I, a big part of this test of being in this realm and is seeing if we are worthy to enter the kingdom. And that is how we treat everybody else who is also trying to figure this out and who we disagree with. You know, you, you were just talking a minute ago about um, how the, the darkness or the land of the darkness, or whatever, was actually what was lit up in the moon and stuff like that. And I was wondering, um, just as far as this idea of calling evil good good evil calling bitter sweet sweet bitter this thing where satan seeks to ch take things and just flip them opposite of what they actually are and when i'm looking at old maps you know like 1700s or pre even before that like uh, 16 15 all the way down to 13 when you look at the names of the oceans they have like the atlantic being called mar de north which is uh the sea of the north then they have the pacific being called mar de south or, or mar de sud which is uh, Sea of the South. So the, the Atlantic and the Pacific, they're not like North or South dividers, they're East and West dividers. And I'm just wondering like, how far has this call good evil, call evil good? How far is this calling something opposite of what it actually is? How far has it really gone? Has it gone so far that we don't even know what direction North really even is? Well, okay, let me reiterate a little bit about the crescent moon. And where I'm saying that the the crescent, the waxing or waning, whatever you interpret it as, because uh, it could be both. Because if the if the the ice wall is moving, depending on where you are in the sunlit world, you are either on the waxing or the waning part. All right. So the the opposite end of the Earth is like the crescent part, right? It's not in the circle and it's lit. What I'm saying is that there is a part of the world that is naturally lit, right, without the sun. This is a theme we see all throughout the Hidden Wilderness narrative, that there is no sun, no moon, but it is brighter there than any sunlit world. Well, if you ever have looked into what's called like the coffee cup experiment uh, with the firmament, and the person I think who popularized this within the Flat Earth movement, to my understanding, is Bob Nodal of Ghostbusters. And... Um, did I say Ghostbusters? I mean Globe Globebusters. He's not a Ghostbuster. He's a he's a Globebuster, and he uh, he showed that 
uh, if you like, it's called the coffee cup experiment. And he shows how the, the earth is surrounded by a firmament, right? A, a big dome. And that you can take the sun, uh, like in the, the southern region or wherever, and it as it shines on the firmament, it creates a light effect that moves around it as a crescent. And that's really exciting. And so with the crescent moon on the flags, you might be seeing that same experiment where you're seeing a light source that is bouncing off the firmament and stretching around to form that crescent. Does that does that make sense, everyone? But the light source, it's not the sun. It's a different light source. And that, that lines up with what we see with the prog clock, with the moon map, all that kind of stuff. I'm just I'm saying that there's something to it. The fact that we see it all across the realm in all religions and different buildings and family crests, it's everywhere. There's, there's something of importance to the crescent moon. That's interesting with the crescent because when I first started looking at flat earth stuff, they had this uh, flat earth map that they would put down and they would put a, uh, it was like a half dome lens over the map, shine a little light under the half dome lens. And the sh that's the shapes that it would take when the light would be refracted by this half dome lens. It's basically the shape that you're referring to. Nice.